0: Welcome back to the Young China Watchers podcast. My name is Sam Colomby. This is the second part of a recorded webinar with Dr. Victor Xi, UC San Diego professor and expert on China's political economy. In the first episode, we heard Victor's economic forecast following decisions made at this year's Lianghui, or two sessions. But of course, what truly caused shockwaves was the decision to implement a national security law in Hong Kong, circumventing local government institutions. National security legislation has long been a point of contention in local politics, even causing a crisis in 2003 when half a million people marched against a proposed security law, forcing the authorities to back down and a responsible legislator to resign. So without further ado...
1: Let's talk a little bit about Hong Kong. It's, uh, it's, it's very bad. It's as bad as most of us had feared. So a whole range of activities, speech, Or writing, which are related to these three uh, subverting, overthrowing state authorities, splitism, and terrorism, will be deemed illegal under this law. But how is the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government going to make this a reality? This is, uh, in a way, the most disturbing part. The law empowers agencies in mainland China, including the Ministry of State Security, and also the Ministry of Public Security and potentially the Intelligence Bureau, whatever it's called these days, of the People's Liberation Army, to set up openly offices. I mean, I I believe these agencies already have offices in Hong Kong, but at least they're sort of hidden. But now they can uh, have open offices and have officers that act openly, presumably with some judiciary uh, power, Right. So so this is not going to be the case where, you know, kind of like the special branch of the old days, you know, where they just get the intelligence on certain activities, report it to the Hong Kong police, Hong Kong police, and go and arrest these people. That's sort of the UK system. Uh, it sounds like that these agencies will have their own power to arrest people. The most, most disturbing possibility, but I think it's, you know, we have to give it at least 50% probability, is that these agencies can arrest people and also to extradite them to mainland China for trial, for so-called trial, and sentencing. If that were to happen, then there would be just a reign of terror in Hong Kong for a broad range of Hong Kong's population. I mean, you have to remember this uh, anti-extradition protest and the the yellow umbrella protest previously involved one-sixth to one-fifth of Hong Kong's population, you know, over a million people. So a lot of people are very sympathetic. A lot of people have expressed their opinions online about these kinds of issues. All of that can be interpreted as a subversion of state power, if not some of the other charges. Also within the Hong Kong government, they are now compelled to uh, effectively Stop these behavior, right? Whatever effectively means, and effectively could mean, um, you know, having Chinese national judges adjudicate over national security related cases. So that's one one of the possibilities being discussed. Uh, also, there was wording in the NPC law on national security education. So that means that sort of they will ram through this uh, patriotic education curriculum in the schools of Hong Kong uh, almost certainly. Uh, they will try to do that. So there will be changes sort of across the board in, in all of these legal regimes. A year from now, I really expect Hong Kong to be a very, very different place. And I think this will have enormous implications, not only for civil society in Hong Kong. I mean, civil society in Hong Kong will come under enormous pressure, but also for investors, right? So. Subverting state power, what does that mean? You know, like, can Muddy Water still do a lot of research uh, trying to short Chinese companies? Can investors who have bought into the bonds issued by SOEs and state banks, what if there's a default? Can they sue these companies in the Hong Kong court? Will they have recourse, or would that be classified as a subversion of uh, state authorities? But if they can't, then there would be no investor's protection just like how investors are treated when they purchase mainland Chinese-issued securities. right? So there are some investors that are still interested in buying bonds and stocks onshore, but certainly the number is a lot smaller. The the amount is also smaller because uh, investors know they have no recourse ultimately in mainland China. And now that could be the case uh, when they purchase uh, securities that have been issued in Hong Kong. Also, with such powerful security agencies operating in Hong Kong, all the regulators of Hong Kong will be afraid of these authorities and will put investors' rights definitely as a second or third or fourth priority compared to the demands of these key agencies. So so I think these are the things that will fundamentally change the investment environment in Hong Kong. And certainly for civil society, it will be quite dark one year from now.
2: Someone had posed the question about more extreme measures that the U.S. could possibly take um, in response to China and Hong Kong. What further actions and sanctions possibly can the U.S. come up with? And then on the Chinese side, what kind of retaliatory measures can the Chinese come up with? And I suppose more importantly, what can really hurt? What What can each side implement a measure that could really, really hurt each other?
1: Okay, what really hurts? The students and exchanges and that kind of stuff, uh, it's already very asymmetric. You know, China already had all kinds of restrictions in terms of, you know, what people from the United States or from the rest of the world could travel to China. You know, obviously anyone involved with uh, civil society that's friendly to these uh, sensitive topics, you know, like Tibet, Xinjiang. And now I, I guess they'll just add Hong Kong to it. You know, any anyone, uh, maybe including professors like myself, you know, who is seen as being friendly to the cause in Hong Kong, won't be able to travel to mainland China anymore. The, so that's one potential consequence, but that's, you know, small in the grand scheme of things. I, I do have to say that this restriction that's been placed on granting visas uh, to Chinese students, especially those graduating from any universities linked to the People's Liberation Army, uh, likely is very, very counterproductive. Just because I think, you know, A, the principle in the United States should be innocent until proven guilty, right? So we do have due process in this country, supposedly, and this flies in the face of it. You know, this is presuming that anyone with those affiliation must be guilty of trying to steal technology. Uh, I think it's much more appropriate to Ramp up the degree of surveillance. Uh, however, the U.S. government does this kind of stuff, and sort of catch people in the act, right? Uh, and that's more in line with uh, the due process that we have in this country. Uh, so I do hope that that kind of policy does not proliferate. In terms of what is the really bad things that can hurt, China has cornered the market on uh, crucial components on a large number of industrial goods. And there was some discussion on like, well, why don't we just stop exporting you know, certain engine parts that you need to make a GM car, certain components that you need to build some machine that's widely and used uh, in the US. And that will basically halt the production of these cars or machines completely. But that proposal was uh, vetoed in China because these economists, you talk to them, well, that will just really hurt the Chinese economy. And also that will facilitate the decoupling of the US and Chinese economies, and that's highly undesirable and so on and so forth. So that argument won the day. Would they revisit the issue again? Um, For a small number of products, they might revisit that issue. So those of you who know this better than me, like there must be one or two components that China produced that if they stopped exporting those components to the US would probably stop a large number of production. So, I think
2: it was, li- um, sorry, I, I think it was lithium. Do you remember this debate a while back uh, about the contribution of lithium across many products, including electric vehicles? I, I forgot yeah, when it that was specifically.
1: could be lithium. It could be, you know, some people said rare earth, but then the US now has a huge stockpile of rare earth. So I don't know. So I don't know the industrial side as well. Uh, so that's one thing that China could use uh, potentially, but then that definitely will facilitate decoupling. And, And ultimately, I think China will not so much resort to that because even a weaker North American market is still a lot bigger than the African market, for example. And so I think with the exception of one or two key components, there will not be a wide ranging export ban to the United States. What can the U.S. do? We've seen probably the worst thing that we could do already, you know, this chip export ban to Huawei. Higher tariffs, (laughs) that's always the... But, you know, higher tariffs, of course, will hurt U.S. companies that are using Chinese. components. I mean, one thing that people don't realize is that if you were going to decouple, the time to do it would have been 15 years ago before China made literally everything in the industrial space. You know, I think this dependence... Uh, on China's production can only be changed at extremely high costs, uh, which of course will make the whole world's economies less efficient and, and highly undesirable, and so on and so forth. Besides the tariffs and trade, I think really the interbank lending needs to be looked at. Uh, and again, I don't think it's desirable to like say, "Oh, you know, we're going to treat China just like Iran and stop all forms of lending to Chinese." I mean. China has borrowed $2.6 I mean, if you cut everything off immediately, you will immediately have a global financial crisis. But whether there should be a conversation on putting a ceiling on how much China can borrow globally, I think from a purely financial and risk management perspective, it is a worthwhile conversation.
2: I think that's a good action to kind of take away um, in terms of what you know we really need to look at, which you know, I suppose it goes back to understanding the real exposure China has internationally. You know, I think most people generally agree that hurting each other through tariffs or financial sanctions is not going to be very helpful. You're going to end up hurting a lot more people. And this obviously phase one of the trade deal that we're still seeing working itself out. But I think Russia, Iranian style sanctions on individuals. Right. So I think this has come up before around Xinjiang and, you know, possibly Hong Kong, considering how many of the elites have children studying and living in the U.S. What about that?
1: Uh, Yeah, that can be done. There'll be retaliation, of course, then, you know, all the members of Congress who sponsor, you know, the Hong Kong Democracy and Human Rights Act, which which basically the entire Congress (laughs) will face similar sanctions and some of them own businesses and, and so on and so forth. I think for the case of Xinjiang, it's justifiable because it is a gross violation of human rights. If the culprits were put on trial in the International Court of Justice, you know some of them would be found guilty. In the case of Hong Kong so far, maybe I'm too blase about this, I don't think it's so bad so far, but only in the context that it's going to get a lot worse. right? So if, if we do begin to see Xinjiang style policies being enacted in Hong Kong, then it would be much more justifiable.
2: The chairman of uh, Hong Kong Exchange, uh, Charles, uh, said that the new security law will improve political stability of Hong Kong in the long term, which in turn will preserve its status as a financial center. What is your take on that? And then perhaps throwing the question someone had asked, when and how will the security law be implemented? Let's let's put that, (laughs) when and how, if you know, know. surely.
1: No, Well, so I answer that, try my best to answer it quickly. There's some commentary about like how September was when they have to pass some kind of law. Let's just say that if my worst fears have come true, your reference point should be what happened to China, to mainland China after the communists took over. So you had a few years of, pretty good. United Front's, you know, co-governing. This, this is when like the, the KMT party, the, the, the left KMT party was allowed to exist as an independent party. But then somewhere in 1955, 1956, all of these independent voices, uh, civil society were just systematically shut down one by one I think Dakota has a, has a really nice book about that, about the, the bloody, Frank Dakota, about this sort of bloody process of transforming mainland China into a socialist society. So something like that might happen. And, and I think given that, of course, the Chinese government uh, has a lot of people in place already, some of them, many of them even in the Hong Kong police, they can make it happen pretty quickly months. So I would say months, not years. Uh, okay. So the other questions is, is it going to be a safer investment environment? So first of all, despite all this protesting and rioting, Hang Sung was fine, at least no worse than the rest of the world. So this whole argument that, oh, protests on the street affected the financial market in a substantial way is complete nonsense. It, it didn't really affect the financial market because investors just don't care about that. The only shares hit by the protests were Hong Kong-based retail service providers, Maisom, you know, like, and all this, that kind of stuff, uh, like restaurant groups, uh, commercial real estate. Who cares about those people? They're just Hong Kong tycoons, which the communists never cared about anyway. Not never, in the 80s they care, but now they could care less. But the negative impact of the national security law will be quite substantial, I think, because investors now potentially will have no recourse. And of course, you know, I believe the healthy functioning of the market requires people to short things. You know, as being generally a bearish person myself, I I, I like to short things. Uh, The ability of shorting things may be vastly curtailed in Hong Kong, which also will make Hong Kong a less desirable market.
2: We're going to take a few more questions. One, what is the thinking behind the current aggressive wolf warrior foreign relations strategy, especially as the world is becoming less enamored with China as a result of COVID? Does the aggression tell us more about the pressure inside China? And then another, which is, can you talk a little bit about political calculations among different factions in Beijing right now as a result of external pressure?
1: Um, So the wolf warrior phenomenon, where does it come from? I think this is one of the signs of an emerging Xi Jinping dictatorship. Now that he is unquestionably the most powerful politician in the Chinese Communist Party, people, uh, officials, especially those uh, in the middle strata of the Chinese government, you know, kind of your sizang, fujang type people, really has a high incentive to exaggerate their compliance with the wishes of Xi Jinping. And I I believe it was Xi Jinping who first mentioned that, you know, China is stronger now. We should have a stronger voice, right? So this Huayu trend becomes extremely important. And so what you saw then was a whole bunch of diplomats and some of the scholars and so on and so forth. uh, And, you know, Hu Xijin, my favorite comic personality, if you will, jumping in reaction and condemning any kind of foreign behavior that uh, seems against the interests of China or against Chinese policies in quite extreme terms, right? So the vitriolics that is being targeting uh, foreign officials, uh, foreign civil society, foreign academics has certainly intensified. And the reason is because uh, with Xi Jinping being unquestionably the most powerful person in China, And with him having pretty nationalist uh, preferences, you know, I I think we can surmise that from everything that he's done so far, people will have an incentive to really play to his preference in order to attract his attention. And the reason for that is because he's the only one who can promote people to a high level, right, from the mid-level to the high level. So from the director general level to vice ministerial to full ministerial level, I believe most of these appointments now require the personal sign-off of Xi Jinping himself. And so as such, it really motivates people to try to get his attention in order to get that promotion. So the domestic flip side of that is is, uh, the anti-poverty thing, right? So as you know, Xi Jinping has really put a heavy emphasis on this anti-poverty campaign, even though by all accounts that I've heard that it's a complete farce, it completely doesn't work just sending a bunch of Beijing bureaucrats to the middle of nowhere to solve the poverty issue, it doesn't do anything, right? <laughs> I mean, like maybe they build a new toilet or something like that, but it, it actually does not resolve the long-term issue of poverty, which is very complex, right? So it has, and ultimately requires huge expenditure from the central government to provide rural public goods, but the central government is not gonna do that <laughs> as we know. But nonetheless, you see a lot of mid-level officials really go out of the way to say, you know, I am going to spend three months, you know, in the middle of nowhere in Gansu and help these people out with anti-poverty, talk to every single domestic reporter they can find about, you know, the lengths to which they go to help with anti-poverty. But really, the function is the same thing. They're trying to get the attention of Xi Jinping to show how much they're willing to fully comply with the wishes of Xi Jinping in order to increase the chance of getting a promotion. And so this is very related to the second question about factions. So I, I think most of the rival factions, if you will, of Xi Jinping have all gone away or are now basically marginalized. Uh, you know, I think the Youth League is still a real faction, but their officials are not doing very well. They're not getting the kinds of promotions that will ultimately bring them into the Politburo standing committee. Officials like Liu Hao, um, you know, who was very promising, did not get into the Politburo, even though he was on his way there. So basically, you have people who are very close to Xi Jinping because they've worked together in the past or their fellow princelings. But if you're not in the Youth League, you're not in Xi Jinping's faction, all you're really trying to do is to get his attention by over-complying, if you will, to some of the policy demands that Xi Jinping is paying attention to. I guess one implication of that is also alarming for Hong Kong, is that people will go out of their way. So if Xi Jinping said, you know, we have to stop all splitism in Hong Kong, these officials will go way out of the way to over-comply with his wishes, often producing results that are really not good, not just for the recipients of these policies, but also for China as a whole.
2: The follow-up, uh, very quickly, if you could address, is from Hamsini. We're seeing this aggressive posture on China's approach to South China Sea and India and the Indian border, so that's obviously been making news very recently. Is it a sign of behaviors to come?
1: I mean, the problem is, Unless Xi Jinping himself fundamentally changes his mind, there's nothing in the system to stop him anymore. Right. So if, if you ask diplomats, or whatever, privately in China, maybe they say, Oh yeah, this is a terrible idea. Why are we, you know, confronting the Indians? That's the last thing that China needs. But moving any troops in China now definitely, definitely requires the permission of Xi Jinping himself. So all we can say is that whatever is happening definitely is because he wished it so. And until he changes his mind, it's not going to stop.
2: Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, uh, mostly because uh, Victor and I talked about this uh, when we were prepping for, for today's meeting. Victor, you're working on a new book. Tell um, us a little bit more.
1: So it's called Coalitions of the Week. It's mainly about uh, the late Mao period. Um, so what people typically know about the late Mao period is that, uh, of course, Mao purged a lot of his contemporaries. You know, the revolutionaries like Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping and Lin Biao—they were purged. But uh, there has not been a systematic study of who replaced these people. Who are the beneficiaries? of the late Mao period. Uh, And what I I argue is that in order to have a long lasting stable dictatorship, what Mao did was to replace anyone who could threaten him with a bunch of people who could never threaten him. And those people included um, a bunch of generals who literally betrayed the party in the 1930s and they were all labeled as counter-revolutionary splitters And so they were very vulnerable to Chairman Mao's uh, attack. So they were actually benefited during the Cultural Revolution because Mao did not fear these people. Mao was not afraid that these generals was going to challenge his power. So they got promoted. The other group that benefited were these uh, writers, propaganda writers, who helped Mao launch the Cultural Revolution, but they didn't have a wide network within the Chinese Communist Party, and therefore they also could not challenge Mao's power. So after the death of Lin Biao in 1971, you basically had these two groups of people occupying most of the senior level positions in the Chinese Communist Party, and that was the secret as to how Mao was able to rule pretty peacefully, I would argue, until he died in 1976. And now if Xi Jinping wants to be a lifetime dictator, which it looks like he does want to, I think he will have an incentive to pursue a similar policy of promoting officials with very narrow uh, networks within the regime. So either technocrats who've always worked in one ministry or one SOE, Or sometimes it could be provincial officials who've always been in one province. Or if they've been in multiple provinces, they have some kind of weakness uh, attached to them, either because they're ethnic minorities, which we are seeing some cases of that, you know, and people like that. Or Xi Jinping has some kind of dirt on these people because of corruption uh, or something like that. Uh, The other implication is that no one else will be able to build up a power base within the party besides Xi Jinping himself. Uh, he's going to be ex- extremely suspicious. You know, anyone who tries to build up a power base will lend themselves to being purged by Xi. So I think this this will make for, um, you know, in a way boring, but, but still interesting to watch kind of political dynamics, especially after the 20th Party Congress in uh, 2022. The book won't come out for quite some time because it's academic publishing. So unfortunately, by my current book, which is called Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability, uh, that is available. It's a collection of essays, uh, not just by me, but by a whole bunch of top political scientists as they think about how economic shocks affect uh, stability in authoritarian regimes in a comparative context. The takeaway for that book is that just because there's a big global recession doesn't mean that these authoritarian leaders are going to fall from power. Uh, One of the big strengths of authoritarian regimes is that they can reshuffle their coalition very flexibly. They're not always successful, but at least in the majority of cases that we looked at, it has been successful. It's not going to be as easy as like, oh, you know, if oil prices fall, then we're going to see a new wave of democratization. It takes sort of more than that i think
2: thank you so simple stuff right i mean easy to resolve that kind stuff. of thing. <laughs> i want to thank victor very very much um and and to everybody um i know it's been covid i know it's not great sitting in your pajamas with an office top uh you know day in and day out but i i'm, I'm very proud of our organization ycw for really rallying together so please keep in touch by signing up and if you have any ideas of what topics you want to cover, who you want to speak to, please just uh, write us directly. So Victor, thank you very much uh, for you. setting the tone, keeping us a little bit depressed, but also optimistic, uh, perhaps fingers crossed. Thanks, right, Victor. Thank Thanks everyone. Have a good yep. Sunday. Bye.
0: I'd like to thank Dr. Victor She again for his incredibly insightful answers to these difficult questions. As I mentioned before, Victor teaches at the UC San Diego School of Global Strategy and Policy. So if you want to hear more from him and his fellow experts in the China program, that's where you need to go. For more info on our organization, go to youngchinawatchers.com. You'll find the full recording from Victor's webinar, as well as a ton of other webinars, interviews with China experts, and plans for upcoming events. My name is Sam Colomby. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions.